Again, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message. We continue our studies on being disciples in community in Matthew chapter number 5. As we've done, I draw your attention to verse number 48 of Matthew chapter number 5, where Jesus makes this statement. He makes this statement to those that have come out to follow Him and learn of Him. He doesn't make this to the entire world. He makes it to those that are set aside for His service, saved, following Him, walking with Jesus. And He tells them, Be ye my disciples. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to grow in our understanding, in the grace and knowledge of the Scriptures. I ask, Father, that you would help us to understand this verse as it applies to the rest of what Jesus has said in this passage. May we not isolate it from the context and do your word in this service. May we understand the thrust of all that Jesus has said here. And how it applies to those that follow you. That we might know how to face tomorrow. Should you give that to us. By your grace. Help us Lord. To take our eyes off of ourselves. And to set our affections on things above. And not on things on the earth. I ask for your help in this message Lord. I pray that you would guide and lead. Lord I've studied and I've done my part at the desk, but now at the sacred desk, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give unction and that your word would accomplish that to which you send it, not by the works of my hands, but by your power. Lord, mold us after the image of Jesus Christ, and we'll thank you for what you do. In his precious name we pray. Amen. We've been studying how Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be disciples, to be followers of Him in community. And this section goes from chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21 of chapter 5, and my head screwed on straight here, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, all the way down to verse number 48. Jesus begins expounding the spirit of the law in light of its letter. Now, he did not begin that journey until he had already laid the groundwork and given the framework for what he was going to emphasize. This might be called, if you were taking a homiletics class per se, this might be called his first main point. I'm, a, I'm terrible at homiletics. <laughs> the more that I preach, the more I learn how, how terrible I am at homiletics. I, I try. And thank you for your grace to me and listening and put up, putting up with me. But nevertheless, you know, as you, anyone who takes classes on homiletics, I think it's interesting, even homiletics teachers don't really know what homiletics is sometimes. <laughs> now, I had some wonderful homiletics teachers, so I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I love Dr. Smith. He, he really ingrained in us some principles about how to study the scriptures and how to organize our thoughts and all of that is important. But uh, as many different classes as there are on homiletics, that's as many different methods and styles as there are on teaching homiletics. Okay, that'll just kind of give you a perspective of what's out there. 
my message is I, I try to stay expositional. And so I look at a passage, I take a, a paragraph of scripture, I pour over that, I study that, and I, I try to, to grasp what God is saying there. And then how does that apply to us today? And based off of that, then we come up with what we need to glean. And so as we have been on this journey, I've encouraged you all along, if you'll protect your heart, that will lead to opportunities for testimony. And those opportunities of testimony will then give you a chance to spread the gospel. I believe that's at the heart of what Jesus is driving home here. Because it goes back to the Beatitudes. It goes back to the salt and light. And this first main point that he's making from chapter 5, verse 21 to verse number 48, bolsters and strengthens the fact that his disciples are to be in the world to make a difference, to let their light shine, to not be salt that's lost its savor, to live the blessed life that he promised could be theirs. Now those promises are eschatological. That means his disciples come into this with an understanding that, well, let's give a financial illustration. Can I just steal from Dave Ramsey again? Because he uses a statement that he says this all the time. He says, if you live like no one else now, you can give like no one else later. Now, that's a biblical principle. And that's also a principle that applies not just to finances. It applies to following Jesus in general. Because if you will know what's now, in other words, the world is not looking forward to persecution for standing for righteousness. The world does not, does not envy those, those that suffer tribulation here. No, we want an easy path. We want, we want peace and we want tranquility and we don't want to stir the nest and we don't want a pro bunch of problems in our life. So we're, we tend to minimize that. At least I do. Maybe people out there look for trouble. So maybe we could say some. You might think of somebody that you think looks for trouble. Don't name them here. Let's be kind. The disciples, right? Amen. Well, Jesus is helping his disciples understand how to be an advocate for them. And hopefully understand what I mean by the word advocate. That is, in, in our sphere of influence that we have with others... We're going to have an opportunity to make an appeal for the case of Christ. And there's someone not very far from you in your sphere of influence that's wondering, what's this Christian thing all about? What's this following Jesus thing all about? Where's the peace? Where's the joy? There are people that would come to Jesus. Can we help them get there? Jesus helps us understand how to make that easier for them to follow Him. Not everyone will. We understand that. Everyone has a free will and they can choose to follow Christ or not. But as a disciple of Christ, we also can bar the way and make it much more difficult for someone to wrap their mind around Christ and give their heart to Him like He would invite them to. Now, it's no fault of Jesus's, is it? Absolutely not. But I wonder how many down through the ages have been turned away from Christianity because his disciple, the one that was supposedly or professedly following him, failed in one of these areas. Whether it was in the court 
of, uh, well, I'm getting my courts mixed up here. What was the first one? It was the People's Court. That's right. How could I forget that? Whether they failed in the People's Court, or whether they failed in the Private Court, or whether they failed in the Divorce Court, or whether they failed in the Court of Honor, if we will understand what Jesus says in these areas, there's two others. And we come now today to the second to the last legal scenario that Jesus Christ gives. Remember some weeks ago, I said that's the backdrop to every one of these. Because if you take this out of its context and try to apply this as a blanket across every area of your life, outside of legal areas, where it comes to dealing with the law and predominantly the name of Jesus Christ before the world... If you take it outside of the context of this passage, you'll wind up being a doormat for someone because they'll call you up and say, well, you're a Christian, you've got to go the extra mile. You're a Christian, you've got to turn the other cheek. You're a Christian, you've got to give. You're a Christian, you've got to do this. Now, are they right? Well, yes, in context. The context is the condition. So it doesn't mean that we just go around and Give and give and give when really it has nothing to do with the testimony of Christ. It's just because they want to fulfill their lust and get what they want. And they don't care who they hurt along the way to do that. No, when it comes to upholding the testimony of Christ before a lost and dying world, this is the public purview. This is where... The court scenario comes in, okay? There, you can do a lot of things and you can work things out. I'm not telling you to be unkind. I'm not telling you to turn a blind eye to people who have genuine needs. If you come away with that, you are misunderstanding me grossly. Because we need to pursue every opportunity and every avenue to help as much as we can without being taken advantage of, except for when dying on that hill... Are you with me? Fighting that battle would give glory to Christ in a way that we could never do otherwise. When you're absolutely certain that Jesus Christ will be in the center of it all, that you, if you die yourself in this, He will get the glory and others will be drawn to Him. You see, we decrease and He increases. John the Baptist understood that. And here was a man whose ministry was in the limelight for quite some time. And here is a man who suffered for righteousness' sake. He stood up for what was right and lost his head for it. And Jesus Christ said of that man, there's not been a greater born among women than John the Baptist. Because he understood some things. Now, he had a little struggle there in the dungeon, didn't he? He began, as one preacher said, to doubt what he knew in the, in the darkness, he began to doubt what he knew about the light when he was in the darkness. And Jesus comes here in verse number 33, and after he helps us deal with our passions up to this point from verse 21 to verse 32, he's been really dealing with the internal passions. Now he's helping his disciples deal with the promises and the things that they say and do, they need to line up. We referenced last time 
the importance of being an advocate for Jesus Christ in the court of honor. And that was in verses 33 to 37. We ought not take God's prerogative on ourselves in any way, but Jesus Christ said, let your yea be yea, let your nay be nay. In other words, say what you mean, mean what you say. Be a person of your word. Keep your commitments. It'd be better that you didn't open your mouth than to promise something you don't intend to fulfill. That's hypocrisy. And that has no place in the follower of Jesus Christ's life. You can't compartmentalize your life. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ has to be in the center. He's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I used to hear a Georgia preacher say that quite a bit. Is he Lord of all? Now, I'm not talking about lordship, salvation, so don't go down that road. But we do need to make him Lord of our life, right? We do need to bow the knee and submit to his authority. As disciples, we do that because we love him. Because of what he's done for us. Now notice in verses 38 to 42 how we need to be a disciple for Christ and to be an advocate for him in the court of appeals. My original word for this was the court of charity. I thought that fit well, but then as I thought about it, you know, this would sound, sound more catchy, I think. So the court of appeals. Now, I'm not talking about going and making an appeal at the court of appeals. I'm talking about when someone comes to you and makes an appeal to you because Jesus says, Him that asketh of thee, give. So we're in the court of appeals. What do you do with those people that ask? He says in verse 38, read it with me. Ye have heard that it hath been said. He's quoting Exodus. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. I want to emphasize, if you apply this wrongly and you just blanket every part of your life with it, I don't think you're following Jesus' words as carefully as you should. You will bear a lot of heartache and a lot of burden that is unnecessary that Jesus would never put on you. In fact, if you take this to an extreme and don't understand what Jesus said, you will wind up contradicting other scriptures. Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And when Jesus says resist not evil, I'm telling you, if you take that position too extremely, I'll catch up with you in heaven probably. Because the bad guys are coming. And we have an obligation to provide and protect. And we stand for liberty and we stand for freedom. And God abhors evil. So there is a scenario in which resisting evil should not be done. You should not resist evil. This is the context. The greatest illustration is the man who spoke these words. Because there was a time when he could have resisted evil. When his disciples attempted to resist evil and Jesus corrected them 
and said, suffer to be so for now. What was that moment? It was pointing to his hour of glory. The moment when Jesus Christ would die on Calvary for the sins of all mankind. Had he resisted evil and called those twelve legions of angels, where would you and I be? But he resisted not evil because he knew why he came. And salvation depended on him. To have true righteousness, we have to have a proper understanding of the law. We have to know that. Now, I'm referring to the Old Testament law. We have to have this backdrop. The verse that Jesus quoted is Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 24 that reads this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This has been known historically as lex talionis. That is the law of retribution. In other words, it's okay to have retribution up to the point of what's deserved. What did they do to you? Did they take an eye from you? Well, then we can persecute them and prosecute them to the full extent of the law up to taking their eye, but no further. That's the law of retribution. Jesus says, that's what you've heard. Again, remember, he is not undoing anything that Moses said. He's getting at the spirit of the law rather than the letter because it's the heart that he's concerned about. This law of retribution, Jesus comes and says, no, there's no place in your heart for that. This agrees with what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That verse doesn't say vengeance is fine. You can repay Vengeance is mine. It's his. And so there will be circumstances perhaps that as a disciple of Christ you have to weigh this in the balance. Is it worth pursuing it? Is it worth going after their eyes? Is it worth going after their hand? Is it worth going after their foot? Or do I just bear the cross and pray for them and let God make things right and give that to him and say, Lord, this is beyond me, but I'm praying for their soul because they need Jesus. Jesus is stating the Old Testament, and then he explains the Old Testament. Not just his opinion, but these are the holy words of Scripture that our Savior has given as an expounding, an explanation of what was given in the law. He gives those six contrasts. That illustrate the true righteousness, and Matthew emphasizes righteousness all throughout his gospel, true righteousness that can be found in the law. If you try to keep the Sermon on the Mount and think it's going to be easier than keeping the Ten Commandments, good luck. Each of these six is introduced again by the phrase, you've heard that it hath been said. The first was the law against murder, verses 21 to 26. He recounts the law in verse 21. He explains the law in verse 22. He applies the law in verses 23 to 26. He gives some illustrations to bring that application home. The second was the law against adultery in verses 27 to 30. He recounts the law in verse 27. He explains the law in verse 28. And he commands urgent action in verses 29 and 30. Then he goes with the law against divorce. 
And this is specifically a writing of divorce. And this is in verses 31 and 32. And I note that on purpose because it was a writing of divorcement. This was not an action of the courts of the day. This was a piece of paper that someone would give to their spouse to say, I'm done with you. And Jesus combats that and says, not so fast. You're going to give an account to God. Then he goes to the law against oaths and keeping your word. In verses 33 to 37, taking an oath was to invoke God's name as the guarantor of a promise. You have no business doing that. And here he comes to the law of retaliation in verses 38 to 42. What I would encourage you, based off his words, is to be slow in retaliation. Take your time. Don't rush into retaliation. Maybe you can prayerfully see what God might be doing beyond the immediate moment of the hurt. Don't live your life in a way that is so eager to retaliate that you're always looking how to make things right and how to use that leverage eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let me give you an illustration. There's a, uh, a Persian royal post officer. Okay, Think about post officers in the Persian army. We're talking about world history here, long, long days gone by. Post officers, they could force a civilian to carry official correspondence. Roman military, their personnel could organize bands of unpaid laborers from the common people to use those laborers to construct roads, to build fortifications, to build public buildings. No compensation. They come to you and say, You got a job tomorrow. Get to work. And there's nothing you can do about it but do the work. Let me give you one of the most probably familiar illustrations of this in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to challenge your thinking for some of you probably here. For others, you've been with me long enough, you know how I stand on this passage. Let me first say that I believe in my Savior and I believe in His power and that though he was a man, he had steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he never once wavered. He never once faltered. I challenge you to go find any words in the scriptures that say Jesus fell beneath the load of the cross. If you find them, please let me know. Because I don't think he will. So I do not believe that Jesus fell in weakness. I don't believe that. But nevertheless, the scriptures do record that someone was compelled to carry his cross. My explanation of that goes to the text. Because the man's name is Simon. He has two sons. One of them's name is Rufus, I think. Two of his boys that are with him in the streets of Jerusalem. Simon, we're told, from whence he hails. Simon is a Cyrenian. Now, I can't prove this, but I would guess that uh, Simon Cyrene was a black man. And I mean that with all due respect. And this man, 
there with his sons, watching this horrific account of an innocent man being put to death, Jesus, I believe, could have full well carried the cross all the way and never wavered once because he was strong enough to bear that. When he laid down his life, it was because he gave up the ghost, not because any man took his life. And we do not have a weak Savior. No, he is strong. To the uttermost, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to him. So then what's all this business about Simon? What's all this business about the Roman centurion that's there and the soldier that's compelling him to take up his cross? Let me give you a scenario that would fit, I believe, the context better. Simon, being, uh, being the man that he is, this is a sad commentary on history, is it not? The depravity in the heart of man, the Romans, and the Jews there in the streets. Here comes the king of the Jews. Oh, every king has a servant. Every king needs a slave. You carry his cross. You, Simon, you're going to be his servant. Because the king needs a servant to carry things. The king doesn't carry it himself. Simon, you carry his cross. Revolting. But that's the heart of the depravity men. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know what, Simon? I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe he tried to run away. Maybe he tried to avoid it. There's no way you're going to. Because of the law of Romans, they could compel him to build a fort if they wanted to. They could compel him as, a, as someone there in the streets to build a road. And so at sword point, with his boys watching, this man comes, takes the cross from Jesus, and does his part without word, without hesitation. So when the world, get this, when the world comes and puts its sword to my throat and says, you carry his cross. What am I going to do? Not today. Or, will I follow Simon's example and say, not my will, but thine be done. Will I decrease and allow him to increase so that Jesus gets the glory? Simon disappears. And we hear nothing more of Him. But Jesus Christ is magnified in all glory. Now, the Greek term million means a thousand paces. And that is a measurement approximately equal to 4,854 feet. And if you think about how many feet are in a mile then it will help you understand why the translators rendered it the way they did. If someone compels you to go a mile, to go a million, precisely 4,854 feet, but you understand. If if someone asks you to go a mile, don't stop there. Some, as I have said, have taken an extreme position on this aspect of resisting money. Historically, the Anabaptists were notorious for this. And I don't know if uh, Sergeant York might have been mistaken for an Anabaptist at one point or another, but 
remember Sergeant York, if you know his story, he refused to fight at the first, but when he was drafted, he sought every way possible, and I think this is a good spirit to have in approaching evil scenarios. I mean, he nailed it. Any way that you can without taking life. And study the life of Sergeant York, how he single-handedly almost, a humble man, he would never take credit for it, but using his skills from the backwoods of Tennessee hunting turkeys, found all those Germans, let them all in. Here he comes with half of the German army just about in World War I. He was a Christian, and at the beginning of his time in, in the army and the military, his commanders, his leaders, were hesitant to put him in any position of leadership until they saw him and saw his quality and saw what he stood for. So he was not an Anabaptist in the sense that we just let evil run over us like a, a freight train and we don't do anything to stop it. No, he understood there are some things we stand for, there are some things we fight for, and we must protect. We have to have courage to do that. Others, uh, let's see, Leo Tolstoy, if you've read his books, he took the position that you should never resist any evil. And um, I'll give you some comments on that here in a moment. But he went to the extreme to basically say, whether anybody and everybody railroad over you and resist not evil in any shape, way, shape, or form. And, uh, okay, now, he's betraying his true rationalism deep down inside. Because as he was confronted on this stance of resisting evil, it was found out that deep down inside, this man believed that all humanity was intrinsically good. That if you were to turn a human being along without any outside influence, and you would let him go into a forest, he would become one, and, and, and it would be harmony. And No, I'll tell you what will happen. You turn that kid loose in the woods, you won't have woods very long. That's what will happen. Mark, mark my words. But this is a difference in worldviews. And in the day in which he lived, the humanistic approach was becoming prominent. And so what he was advocating for is, is a grand thing to advocate for. But I'm telling you, it's a dream that cannot be realized apart from when Jesus Christ returns in fullness and rules from Jerusalem for that thousand year reign of peace. You want to call that utopia? That's the millennial reign. And Jesus Christ will rule the rod of iron. And there will be peace for a thousand years on the earth. But up to that point, Tolstoy's dream is just that. It's a dream. And it can't be realized. But this is the kind of utopianism that has fed Marxism and communism and socialism. And we've got a big battle on our hands today because people don't understand socialism. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they understand it better than I do because I read an article, I think last week, that said basically young kids today know what socialism is. It's free stuff. <laughs> I just can't argue with that. But what are you going to give up for that free stuff? Nothing's free. You're going to give up your liberty and the liberty of all those around you. You're going to give up your freedom that has been fought for and paid for and paid for in blood. No, we must stand and fight for liberty and truth and justice for all and equity and equality. 
Tolstoy got it wrong because he was aiming for some utopia. Yeah, he knows we'll just, if the government won't pursue evil and, and not resist evil, in other words, just let the thieves take over, eventually mankind will get to the place where nobody wants to steal anymore and nobody wants to murder anymore and we'll just all be good people. There was another man who advocated for this wrongly, I believe. I believe his heart was in a good place, but he was sincerely wrong. Again, just like Tolstoy. The man's name is Gandhi. And he went so far as to even implement these things. The Sermon on the Mount was one of the things that he said made the biggest impact on his life. And he would resist peacefully, right? He would have his peace resistance things that he would do. Simply put, if you think about where he was doing this, okay, he leaves his education and he goes back to India, which is a part of spiritually Hindu country, so they're prepared in their heart to receive his spiritual teachings. Are you with me? The other nation that he was really working with to try to get on board with his ideas for peace, peacemaking in that regard, was Britain which is, was primarily at the time a Christian nation, which would also have to give ear to his spiritual uh, appeal, especially when he's going to the Sermon on the Mount. But mark this well. You take the same things that Gandhi did in India and try to do in Britain, and you do them in Russia or Germany. And I'll tell you what you wind up with. You'll have Gandhi standing strong for about three days, and then he will be silenced and never heard from again. I'm not trying to be unkind. I am simply pointing out that humanity is depraved and sinful. Jesus was no, in, in no way, shape, form, or fashion prohibiting the administration of justice when he was saying, was this not evil? He was forbidding, rather, us to take the law into our own hands. You are not allowed, as a follower of Christ, to become your own headhunter. Give that to the Lord. Eye for an eye. This is a principle that belongs to the courts of law. In personal life, in our walk with Him, we have to be rid of all retaliation in word and deed. Retaliation many times stems from bitterness that hasn't been dealt with biblically. We have to get even. We must not repay injury, but we must suffer it. And this, in this context, is how we will overcome evil with good. You had to balance his statement, was this not evil, with other passages like Romans 13, where it says to submit to all God-ordained authority. Now think this through. You're being kind and giving me your attention. I appreciate that. Think this through. The same world government that Paul says in his day were the Roman emperors who Nero persecuted Christians bloodily the same government that Paul said we are to submit to is the same. Rome is the same government in Revelation chapter number 13 
that not only, as Paul says, will be used to administer God's justice and to be his sword and his and is their ministers unto us for good. Paul says that the same Roman government in, Ro- in Revelation chapter number 13 will be the same government that is used by the Antichrist and used by the devil to put countless people to death wrongfully. The same government. And yet the scripture stands true. Jesus says resist not evil. Paul says submit yourself to the God being authorities. You must find balance. There are other passages that teach us about civil disobedience. There are times for that. We ought not, uh, we ought, we can't help but speak the things we've seen and heard. And if there's anyone that's telling you to disobey the word of God, to come under some law of men, you're going to have to answer to God on how you give an account for that. To turn the other cheek. How do we do that? To turn the other cheek could be misrepresented as weakness. But can I tell you, it is by no means weak. No. In fact, I mean, I don't recommend that you get involved in psychology, but psychiatrists helping us try to understand uh, try to understand strength and weakness. We ought to try to help people. Psychologists tell us that violence is born of weakness, not strength. That's what they're saying. In other words, if you're weak, that's when you become violent because it's the only way you know how to retaliate. It makes sense to me because I've seen kids before that don't know how to use their words and they wind up talking with their hands because that's the only way they they know to get their strength across. No, it takes strength to shut your mouth. It takes strength to turn the other one when they've already smitten you on one cheek. To send a message that you're trying to help the sinner. It is the strong man who can love and suffer hurt. It is the weak man, Wiersbe said, who thinks only of himself and hurts others to protect himself. He hurts others and then runs away to protect himself. I'll close with this illustration about the second mile. We're talking about not resisting evil. We're talking about the court of appeals, those that would ask of you, what are you going to do? What was Simon's response when he was compelled to give and to do above and beyond what was comfortable for him? Listen to this as we close. In an unequal power situation, you have no choice about the first mile. The Roman soldier comes to you and says, build that road. Build that fort. The Persian officer comes to you and says, carry that correspondence. You've got no no choice. You're going to do it. The government comes to you and says, pay your taxes. Now the soldier has a sword. So you carry his gear. And it's a mile, an hour, an hour of your life or so, however long it takes you to walk that, you will never get that back. That time is forever gone. You are the loser in that situation. What are we going to do? Okay, here it is. Here's where the rubber meets the road. The second mile is your choice. Let that sink in. It's your way of saying, God's in control. 
He's the one that gives me energy. A mere mile, that doesn't exhaust me. The sword, that's nothing. God is everything. God is everything. You want to know where real power lies? Real strength. Try to keep up with me and I'll tell you. Have that conversation with the soldier. When you've gone the mile and he's looking for somebody else and you step in and say, hold on, I'll go further. If you can keep up with me, let me tell you how I'm able to do this. Let me tell you the one who enables me because God is everything. The second mile, while you have no choice over the first, the second mile is your choice. That's where you can allow Christ to increase you can magnify Him only if you're sensitive to His leading and only if you're looking for those open doors that He'll lead you to someone who, while you might be compelled to go so far, is it worth going the extra? In turning the other cheek, could someone find Christ? Could they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? In giving your coat and your cloak, could it help others who are watching come to Christ? As a disciple, you're going to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you're going to be perfect, like your Father in heaven is perfect, you won't hesitate to turn the other cheek when needed, to go the extra mile when needed, to give off your back when needed. You're just going to do it because you're concerned about souls and you want to see lives change. For Christ.